This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. This interview was recorded in the middle of November, when Kiev was relatively quiet. But with the war being an evolving set of circumstances, things have since changed. For our last episode of the year, we're diving into something we're all doing a lot around the holiday season. Partying. In turbulent times, parties can be a necessary vehicle for letting off steam, distraction and finding joy. Something that's particularly true in Ukraine right now. Take the capital Kiev, where its rave culture, already established before the invasion, has become a surprising and vital part of city life in times of war. It's inevitably changed, and ravers have had to make compromises. But the scene remains as vibrant as ever. You're on adrenaline all the time. And then you get to a point where that adrenaline inevitably drops, and now you have to live. But there's nothing left to live for because... All the little things disappear, had disappeared during the first month of the war. So now you have to get them back and reinstate them and open some bars and open some restaurants and give those little joys back to people. I think in the party scene, you can see a lot of how the society develops. You can see the stagnation. You can see sometimes the boredom, but you can also see that driving force of youngsters and and people who want change and are coming up with more and more out-of-the-box ideas of how to achieve that in their country. I'm talking today to two guests, both who know the scene well. A journalist. It is dark. It is very, very gritty. It is packed with people. Like, you feel people sweat as you pass by them. And there are... Women dressed in leather suits. Uh, There are men in 12-inch heels and butt cheeks out and looking, you know, amazing. And a writer. I mean, to party in the context of war, it's very much this feeling of strength and the feeling of strong spirit. First, Anastasia Halushka, who reports from the front lines for newspapers like The Washington Post and The Independent. We first saw her work in the magazine, Stranger's Guide. With her reporting schedule, there's not a lot of downtime for Anastasia. But she did find time to party in the name of research for us at a popular Kiev venue. 
I realized that I haven't been to a rave in a while. And K41, it's a famous club uh, in Kiev, uh, was having its fourth year anniversary birthday party where they were inviting a bunch of, you know, artists, uh, a bunch of DJs. And they are actually, the club is in an old warehouse, an old actually kind of factory slash warehouse that has been rebuilt internally. So I was there wasting my hours away and enjoying it very, very much. Have you got any audio from that? I do. Can I play it now? Tell me a little bit about what it felt like, what it smelled like, what it sounded like. If it had changed since the last time you kind of went out to a rave in Kiev. So everything is accepted. Everyone is welcomed. And it was loud, noisy. You 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 couldn't place the people around you. Everything was constantly moving. People were making out. People were, you know, there were these kind of walls that were like uh, metal nets that people were pushing each other up against. There are a bunch of quiet rooms in that place. I still haven't discovered all of them where people just talk, chat, um, make out, drink, do whatever. And then there's the main dance floor, which is, I don't, I couldn't give you the square meters, but it was incredibly big. When I was standing at the back, I could not see the DJ at the front. In the middle of the dance floor, there's a little like podia, little stages that are maybe 30 centimeters high that people would jump on and then start dancing, start undressing, start screaming. And it was, it was like stepping into a zoo. It just kind of felt like Ukrainian society was going, it feels right now so contained and condensed in this war effort that once the okay is given for this kind of party, it just explodes to an even more extreme level. It's almost also kind of a defiance of we're still here. A middle finger towards Moscow, towards Russia. My friend Dima, his stage name is Badworth, used to be a Russian speaker, a Ukrainian, but Russian speaking. Since the war started, he has switched completely. He despises his old music. He speaks Ukrainian now every day. Nobody pressured him. We're a very open, friendly, you know, group. But he just himself has gotten to a point like, I have to pick a side and I don't want to pick that side. You know, music playing during sets, they only pick Ukrainian songs now. It used to be Russian and that doesn't get played anymore. That just gets, you know, and not even booed. It doesn't even get onto the stage because people don't allow it. When you were describing what it's like to walk into that rave and I think about the raves that I've gone to and there's nothing that makes you feel more alive than being sort of in the crush of thousands of people dancing. Yeah. Where have you been? I went to university in Glasgow, which had a big rave scene. So there would be a lot of like massive warehouse parties. And then in New York, um, Bushwick um, in Brooklyn has like a big scene. Um, But Glasgow was the place that I really like sort of discovered how to party. And I was watching this movie last night called Beats which is set in Glasgow. It was made a few years ago and it's about the like 90s rave scene and um, the tension that was taking place in Glasgow at the time and in the UK where it was like the sort of the emergence of the UK rave scene and then the government trying to shut down illegal parties and what you were saying about um, the choice of music 
Um, And not playing Russian music also makes me think of the fact that these sorts of events can be political acts. I actually had like a very long chat about this with Sergei Leshchenko, who is the advisor of the president of Ukraine, of President Zelensky. He's 42 years old. He's a longtime raver, uh, a very hardcore raver. It goes every time I go to a rave in Ukraine, he's there. I don't know how he manages it because there's a lot of raves all the time. And he's also very anti, you know, drugs and very anti-alcohol and supposedly always sober, but he's always there. Like these people are part of democratic development, the fact that they are organizing raves goes hand in hand with the democratic development of this country. It pushes and propels the democratic development forward because you cannot have raves in autocratic and like authoritarian countries. You know, usually raves start at like midnight, but you've curfews to navigate. So like what, what time is it starting and when's it ending? At 12, everyone has to be home. You cannot be out on the street. You cannot be on the way home. There's checkpoints, police stops and checks you, and curfew lifts at five in the morning. So what we do is we start a rave at 4 p.m. And it's, it's a rave anyway in a factory that has everything walled up and you don't have any sunlight coming in. So it doesn't matter. It feels like nighttime when you're there. And I guess it's winter. So, you know, the days are shorter. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely that as well. And then it stops at like 11 usually to give everyone time to clear, get out. Looking at the news over the weekend, I noticed that there were drone strikes happening over and around Kiev. How much are you or your friends kind of like thinking about that making any sort of risk assessment when you're going out to a rave? Actually, while we were at the club, air raids did go off. And I think multiple times even. Um, I have an app on my phone that jumps up. So whenever there's an air raid siren, it says it comes up immediately. Like it makes a noise. Luke Skywalker's voice booms out of my phone and says that there's air raids. Um, and to please, really, it's true. It's the actor's voice. <laughs> and to please evacuate to <laughs> a bunker or a basement. Honestly, I haven't been in a bunker. I don't even remember the last time, but it probably would have been somewhere at the front lines when I was working there. Obviously, afterwards, we heard the news that there were like drones flying in. But first of all, inside of the building, nobody heard it. Nobody really checked their phone. And I definitely don't, haven't seen anyone responding to it in a way of like, oh my God, we should go to the shelter. The way that people think about it now is, well, if it hits us, we'll go out with a bang. What was it like on the dance floor when people's apps went off? People weren't looking at their phones, I'll tell you honestly. First of all, people don't pull out their phones on these kind of events because your cameras have stickers over them. You're not allowed to take photos, selfies, whatever. But in that moment as well, think about it. You're surrounded by hundreds of people raving to this insane music, letting go of energy that has been pent up in you for so long. People are not looking at their phones. They like they just couldn't care. And actually, I did have a conversation with a girl in the bathroom. We were kind of talking and she said at a certain point to me, it's so weird to be here 
when there's such horrible things happening. And I feel so sad, you know, about this war that is ravaging our country. But I also feel so relieved that I can come somewhere to try and forget, you know, what we're going through, what we're living through every day. But she was very worried about their soldiers fighting on the front lines. And here I am, like a horrible person, partying it up in Kiev. And she couldn't let go of that thought. Partying feels like, it feels like an indulgence, right? It feels like a selfish act. It does. And I get her because I, I do have the same thing. And in that context, it seems overindulgent to have these kind of parties. And I will never take a point of view on that. If a, if a military guy comes back from the front tomorrow and says, this is outrageous, this is horrible that you guys are doing this, I will not fight him on it. But then on the other hand, I do know, you know, of military commanders who have come back from defending the line in Bucha and Irpin that was north of Kiev last year. And they came back to Kiev and over the summer they were playing at K-41 or at Keller Club and they were playing as a DJ. So everyone has kind of their own vision on how to deal with it, with the stress. Well, then I guess it's like you can't look at things. It's so two-dimensionally, right? Of course. Like humans don't function that way. And do you think that there is an element of, you know, you said it's uh, partying and going to raves as a tool for forgetting. But does it also feel like one for survival, at least when it comes to mental health? Yeah, that was actually the next point I was going to make. It is... It's survival. And I feel it now more than ever because it has become almost so animalistic. Coming up, how raves in Ukraine are creating safe spaces that encourage mutual respect and tolerance and are fostering a sense of community that goes well beyond that moment in the warehouse. Join me, Esther Perel, every Monday in my office on Where Should We Begin? I'm talking to couples and individuals about love and work, about turning conflict into connection. More than ever, our relationships define the quality of our lives. So let's explore the myriad of relational challenges together. See you Monday. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs, Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, 
and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everyone's just so nice and relaxed and having a good time and getting rid of their pent-up energy. So it's nothing but good vibes. I was dancing with my fiancé, I was just going wild, and I'm looking over and there's a gay couple, shirts gone, very, you know, extrovert, like, I think someone had pink hair, someone had yellow hair, and they're making out passionately in the middle of this total chaos with smoke screens and lights and everything, and everyone around them is jumping, and they're just like having their little... These people do not get to even hold hands in a public space. They cannot, they will be beaten up let alone kiss or hold each other. In Ukraine today. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not, unless it's a gay bar, It's I've talked to gay friends about this because I find that actually the most horrible thing to go out to the store with your partner and not be able to just grab their hand. How absurd is it that people have to live that way? But here in that space, they're hugging each other. They're holding each other. They're kissing each other. They're living their best life and no one will tell them anything except for oh my god you're so you're dressed so great like you look so awesome tonight that's the only kind of feedback they will be getting this party last weekend where i was at k41 they are very tightly related to a certain brigade that's fighting at the front and their entire winnings go to donating money for drones, for protection, for anything for that brigade. So when you come in, you have to pay an entrance fee, but the entrance fee is a free donation. And I, we actually know people, me and my friend group, we know people from that brigade. They will come to the club themselves sometimes when they're on leave because they know the owner so well and the owners are so helpful. A lot of bars and clubs and, you know, owners of establishments during the first days of the war just gathered all their manpower to just get work done to help the military. And they still continue that work to this day. So a lot of clubs are, you know, with all their winnings, they raise like donations, they buy stuff for the military because Ukraine still isn't on the same military level as Russia. Obviously, we need a lot more. So there's this Ukrainian organization called Repair Ukraine. What they do is when certain houses or certain places in Kiev or around Kiev in the vicinity have been bombed, they did this in Bucha, in Irpin, they did this in Chernihiv. Um, they organize a sort of trip with a bunch of volunteers. They get to the place of impact, to the place that has been shelled. This can be a house, an apartment building, a warehouse, a farm, anything. They will set up uh, speakers. They will set up a DJ booth. A DJ will play, you know, techno, all kinds of EDM, basically. And while the DJ is playing a set, all the volunteers are going through the rubble and cleaning it up. So they're getting all these, like, you know, leftover bricks or the roof that has fallen down. They just clean it all up, clean it out, get it into garbage bins, get it, like, moved off the property under, you know, the music. And, like, several DJs are invited to do it. They all donate their time. And obviously, they just can't do it in, like, East Ukraine. It's a very different setting. You cannot do it 20 kilometers from the front line. Another rocket might hit you while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. 
But um, yeah, you're doing it a lot and it's actually very great to see. It's amazing and inspiring. Given that there has been such a level of destruction, have raves been moving into some of these spaces that have been damaged by bombing or is that purely seen as something to be restored? No, that would be in bad taste. Yeah. It sounds funny that I say it that way, but um, I haven't heard of it because it's one thing to, you know, do a cleaning wave where you help, you know, restore kind of or clean up a farm that has been hit. It's completely different to just like come into a destroyed house or, you know, a property that someone once owned that has been burned to the ground and and take and just organize a party there. That's that's a very different, you know, ballpark. That's really interesting. You described everyone as exhausted, and yet people are finding ways to be creative. I know people are way more. Uh, I, I sometimes look at it and I'm like, how do you do it? Like, I just, I can't. But they they do. I think it's because partially it's an outlet, right? At certain points, I think it gets so much that you need to get it out somewhere. But I think it also comes and goes in waves when there's more, you know, there's certain emotions keeps building up and at a certain point has to get out. But then once it's out, I think it becomes harder to draw inspiration from, you know, everyday things. You kind of have to wait for that adrenaline to hit again. That's at least that's how I feel in my work. Outside of the people who are going to the raves or involved in rave culture in Ukraine, What's it sort of like in the wider community in Kiev right now? How are people gathering and finding that sense of connection as we go into the second Christmas? It's hard. I I know for myself that I've become a lot more isolated and I have a hard time, you know, being around. I used to be such a social butterfly and now I'm just constantly socially and emotionally depleted. And I know that a lot of my friends feel the same way. And everyone's just like, we get it. Like nobody... Nobody has the energy to reply or come out and meet up for drinks. It does still take place. It happens. It just happens at a much lower pace. People find their ways to bars and restaurants that are open, parties. You know, people hang out at homes with my girlfriends. I do a lot more sleepovers now because sometimes you're not finished talking by midnight. So you just stay the night and you find these little things that still bring you joy. Kiev in winter is exceptionally hard because it's so cold. I mean, there's going to be snow covering the streets all over pretty soon. And as stupid as this sounds, because I said it last year and someone laughed at me and said, I can't believe that there's a war and this is what you're worried about. But the fact that these problems with electricity also persevere, we haven't had them turn off the lights yet. But if they will happen again this year, the way it did last year, There was not enough electricity. There were, you know, power outages, controlled power outages, but still you get electricity in shifts, which means there's no Christmas lights. There is no, you know, Christmas decoration. There's no, there was no Christmas tree or Christmas market. And it sounds funny that I'm worried about this when there's, you know, almost a genocide going on in my country. But at the same time, the winter does drag out long. And aside from us, you know, being here in Kiev, There's soldiers like in trenches that are freezing in minus 20 temperatures that are holding their positions just so we can be calm and like have a nice evening in Kiev. And that's something that 
stays with you. It also carries, I think it, it passes on a feeling of guilt, no matter what you do. As much as you can accept that internally, it's still always there. Like I'm enjoying this because of them. Someone is sacrificing something in order for me to be able to have this level yeah. of safety or comfort or sense of normality. Yeah. And I also imagine the Christmas lights, much like the raves, it's like a little glimmer of being human and what it is to feel joy. Yeah, it definitely is. Because it's, it's eventually it is the small things, right? As much as, you know, these raves or artwork or, you know, a, a violinist who's playing on the street, as much as those are all small things, they are kind of what make the day pass by and make it a pleasant experience. People are also just tired of living in fear. They're tired of constantly being afraid and constantly being worried. When you're surviving in the first months of the war, you are surviving. You are on adrenaline all the time. And then you get to a point where that adrenaline inevitably drops and now you have to live. But there's nothing left to live for because all the little things disappear, had disappeared during the first month of the war. So now you have to get them back and reinstate them and open some bars and open some restaurants and give those little joys back to people. And I think that's something that is being fought for right now, but it's not, it's never an easy discussion to have in a public sphere. It's always going to be criticized by people who feel that it's not appropriate. In a minute, a novelist in Lviv who's incorporating rave culture into her new book. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Poet and author Haska Shyam is talking to me from her hometown Lviv in western Ukraine. I try to make this mixture of family novel and historical novel. There is a mother and a daughter and there are generational differences, but also generational unity. And also I really try to show this, how much we were like dragged into this Russian context, like as empire, as colonial empire, how we, like they try to have control all the time. Uh, parties are not that much of central part of it, but it's important part of it. <laughs> Parties often get described as frivolous or an indulgence, but it seems they serve a greater purpose, right? Yeah, I do think they, they serve a greater purpose because, I don't know, I mean, it's still like a lot about trust and feeling of community. Like uh, when you think about so many people like having fun together, it's a lot about trust. Like, you know, like to relax, you have to, to trust people around. And it's also this feeling of community and like, 
you know, not doing harm to the others and like respecting the way the others have fun. I mean, to party in the context of war, it's very much this feeling of strength and the feeling of strong spirit. In my next novel, I really try to describe this uh, last decade of uh, Ukraine. Uh, a bit of Lviv, a bit of Odessa, a bit of Kharkiv, uh, but mainly Kyiv. Because for me, somehow, I understood that it, it was this, this Belle Epoque, this golden era. In the last 10 years, it was really super dynamic. The parties were really amazing, you know, like vibes. And there was also this quite interesting movement of kinky parties, like also like this when the feeling that sex revolution finally came for us. <laughs> I don't know, like what, 60 years later, 70 years later? Because <laughs> it was your 1960s. So um, there was this very like uh, conscious moving of like, you know, sexual freedom, but also with all kind of consent and... Um, and acceptance and body positive uh, component in it. So it was really like um, basically shaping this new uh, new generation. And also somehow like I do think that the free approach was something that uh, actually detached us from uh, post-Soviet and Russian context uh, a lot. How much do you think that was a conscious choice or was it happening organically and sort of claiming a, a modern Ukrainian identity? I think it was more organic and uh, kind of instinctive thing that was happening in a natural way. You, you're really right. I see it more in retrospective that um, there was really important and uh, influential. As far as you're willing to reveal, could you describe any of those parties? I really remember the date because it was the last weekend before the lockdown in Kiev. And it was, um, it's a very like famous and important collective uh, from Berlin. It's called Pronceptual. So these parties are like, um, basically you have to come there almost undressed. Like all this kind of like, you know, black tape on the nipples thing. Like many people were like almost undressed, but no one felt threatened or like being harassed or um, unrespected. So uh, there were some dark rooms, but um, it was not that much of like, you know, sex party. It was more a space of liberation and freedom. Yeah. And they really had this very conscious um, approach, as I said, to consent, for example. For example, when people entered, they were to select the bracelet. It was like, red, yellow, or green. So basically, if you're interested in any kind of interaction, it's green. If you like doubting, it's yellow. If it's if you just like came to explore um, without any contact, it's red. There is a big festival um, called Strichka uh, that is like um, happening uh, every year. This year they had this festival and um, they usually, like during the festivals, they always gather a lot of money for, uh, for the army and buy things for the army. So it's like somehow it's uh, even like the places where people have the most fun and they the most chill, it's still this conscious of war going on is still very present.
whenever I go to these raves, I always make a point of trying to talk to the bartenders because they see it all. They see like, you know, the aggression, the, you know, at every party, there's this one asshole. That is always that one asshole. Always. (laughs) That it's always that one asshole who's like at the bar trying to make a rouse, like, you know, hitting on girls, being absolutely just his most horrendous self. You just don't have that at these raves. I actually talked to a bartender, I think it was at a certain festival uh, last summer where I actually asked like, so, you know, is it going? You know, you're probably having a busy night. And he was like, I love these nights because everyone's so friendly. We're taking a break for the next couple weeks and we'll be back on January 11th with a brand new episode. While we're away, we're revisiting one of my favourite episodes with best friends Nicole Bayer and Sashir Zamata. We'll also be dropping into your feed an episode from the New Yorker's smash hit podcast, Critics at Large, about Britney Spears' new memoir. And we're working on an upcoming show about travelling for our obsessions. If you have a story you can share with us about a trip to experience something you are truly obsessive about, DM us on Instagram at Women Who Travel or shoot us an email at womenwhotravel at cntraveler.com. See you in the new year. I'm Lale Arakoglu and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Kuroga. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Duke Kapfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.